It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. And welcome to Earth 911's Sustainability in Your Ear. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe, your host, and we are back to have another conversation with a changemaker working to accelerate the transition to a sustainable, carbon-neutral society. The plastic industry desperately needs to step up its recycling game. Less than 6% of the approximately 370 million tons of plastic produced each year is recycled. Recycling is all about economics and making it profitable depends on gaining reliable access to supplies of recyclable materials, as well as customers who are ready to buy the processed plastic once it's been recycled. And nowhere is that more difficult than in plastics recycling. Our guest today is Christian Schiller, co-founder of Surplus, that's Surplus with a C, C-I-R-P-L-U-S, for those of you listening, a digital marketplace for circular plastic. Think of it as Match.com or Tinder for European plastics recyclers, and ultimately it'll be extended to the United States. That includes companies that collect post-consumer materials, all the stuff that we try to recycle, and those that sell processed recycled plastic for use in new products. Surplus connects sellers with buyers and collects fees for speeding the transaction along. Sellers save on marketing costs and can establish ongoing relationships that support their business growth with just a few clicks. Christian previously helped to build Blah Blah Car, which is one of the largest car sharing services in the world. He was the first employee at the transportation marketplace. Digital technology, as we often hear from our guests, creates efficiencies that make previously difficult markets come to life. So let's dive into surplus and see how the recycling industry can be reimagined around predictable flows of materials within countries and across borders. You can learn more about surplus at surplus.com. That, again, is C-I-R-P-L-U-S, surplus.com. Welcome to the show, Christian. How are you today? I'm great. It's quite warm here in Hamburg, Germany, but uh, I'm doing great. Well, let's hope it's not another summer of record heat. <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to start off and ask, because plastics recycling has been a, a very challenging market to be in, but one that is suddenly very much in demand. What motivated you a, a couple of years ago to, to launch Surplus? And what made you think that the plastics recycling market was ripe for reinvention? That's a great question, Mitch. Um, prior to his launching Surplus about three and a half years ago, I had been the first employee at a platform called Blah Blah Car. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a French unicorn these days, the largest ride-sharing platform in the world, right? This is this is kind of where I learned the ropes, how to build platforms. And I was the first employee in Germany 
scaling from zero members to six million, zero employees to 15. So what was supposed to be a freelancing gig for six months turned into four and a half years of like this crazy unicorn story of scaling really from zero to, well, actually then when I left, we were 550 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so after four and a half years I, and my vesting was kind of through, I said, all right, I don't really want to Paris, which would have been the next step for me. Um, so I quit my job and I fulfilled a lifelong dream of mine, which is traveling the world on my own. So I packed my backpack and traveled the world for a year. And it was there on month six when I was mostly in South America mm-hmm. and then doing a typical tourist trip from Cartagena, Colombia to Panama. It's like a classical sailing trip, six days, Caribbean waters, paradise. So I thought. And uh, what then happened was uh, I actually had my legs at the rear end of a boat, second day on the open sea. And we were then traversing, actually entering a massive carpet of algae and plastic waste. The algae was kind of forming a net where plastic waste was captured and a little biofilm had been on it. So something touched my leg. I got up and you saw it for the first time in my life. I saw what the plastic pandemic really means. And that's really what it is. It's a pandemic, I think, these days that an uncontrolled influx of plastic into the environment. And sure, which I had heard before about plastic as a problem, but never had I been exposed as a German to the real problem of where it ends up, you know, when it ends up in the ocean. And that was the moment I wrote in my travel blog, hey, I got six months left and I'm also an avid surfer, you should know. So it's a topic close to my heart. But I wrote in my blog, hey, do you know NGOs, companies, anybody who's dealing with a plastic waste issue? Because mm-hmm. I didn't have a job when I came back six months later. And then I was looking to well, how can I dedicate my skills to a problem I really care about? So to your answer, your question, that's really what got me into thinking about this space and thinking it's such an underused resource, a plastic, you know, after single use ending up in the ocean, can we not make more out of it and better? And can we not find, find found a profitable business around it? Little did I know of the complexity of the plastic recycling markets back then, um, for the better probably. <laughs> but I really then entered with the idea saying, all right, the transactional costs are so high, virgin plastic is generally cheaper, which you know makes this market struggle forever really. Right. Um, can digitization help bring down these transactional costs, somewhat help on the way of leveling the playing field? And that's what surplus is to come to an end here. Um, it's con- trying to connect these fragmented, intransparent markets of plastic waste and plastic recycling back with the pro- producing companies and conversion and the brands to lower the cost and establish re- reliable supply chains around quality recycled plastics. And you describe it as a marketplace for circular plastic. And, and having been to a lot of plastics recycling and other recycling industry events, I know that most of those relationships start over drinks or on the show floor, they have a conversation and then they just sort of ship plastic for the longest time they possibly can before they have to renegotiate. And in 2018, when China stopped taking all of our plastic because it was contaminated, the market fell apart. Why, why now do we see so much increased demand for recycled plastic? I know it's consumer driven, but do you see a real change in the marketplace and how is surplus working to to really accelerate that transition? Yeah, and I think it's fascinating that you mentioned the Chinese uh, import ban. I think that sets in motion what I would call right now a perfect storm. There's like so many aspects that now like make this market grow faster and faster and make the demand grow much stronger than the supply. 
but actually started with what you mentioned, China closing its borders. So all of a sudden, plastic waste needing to find new and equally cheap outlets, right? But at the same time, also the European Union started really for real around the European plastic strategy, mm-hmm. trying to think, you know, we are a resource poor continent, unlike the United States. And we have all these carbon hydrocarbons in the form of plastic in our countries already. Why do we not make more of it, you know, and putting like this lip service that you usually hear in the circular economy before, you know, like we should turn waste into resources, but now taking the first real steps to put a regulation into place, even before I would say the consumer bubble came and the consumer pressure to set steps into motion and unknown to many as well, the German Packaging Act then entered into force 1st of January 2019. And that was exactly one month after we had founded Surplus. Us being a German company, we're obviously close to the German market. And that was in Europe, the first regulation mm-hmm. that actually tied a certain bonus and or punishment fee to the use of recycled plastics or rather non-use of recycled plastics in packaging. Yeah. So kind of trying to really level the playing field now for real and say, all right, if you Procter and Gamble and you Henkel continue just business as usual, we're just going to make it more expensive for you to just use virgin plastic. Now, fast forward another three years and uh, Germany has been overtaken by countries like the UK and even there's movement in, uh, in the United States that try to do exactly the same to add costs to the use of just virgin plastic mm-hmm. and so strengthen this push demand push towards putting recyclers into products. And then you add Greta Thunberg and yes, the sustainability push. And now we talk about the Ukraine crisis and scarcity of resources. So that's what I mean, Mitch, with this perfect storm right now that has low access to virgin resources, high demand from big brands driven both by consumer pressure and regulatory pressure. And that sort of leads to this incredible growth in the recycling markets, I think a growth that the market has not seen in it probably ever. No, as far as I'm aware, this is new. Uh, Now, I've been on the site. I've spent some time. Tell us how it works. I've got some unrecycled, collected plastic. What happens? What's the first step? Yeah. So, yeah, if you're, let's say you're a waste owner, you have collected plastic waste, could be even unsorted or could be bailed already if it's from a consumer stream or MRF coming. You can specify the plastic waste, put it on the platform so recyclers can come on the platform and get in touch basically and start sourcing plastic waste feedstock. And at the same time, putting everything from regrind all the way to then regranulates and compounds on the platform for sale as well. So for recycler, they're really in the middle, kind of as a three-sided marketplace. They can buy and sell. And uh, the buyers on the very end are then the plastic converters or the brands. Mm-hmm. that need granule material to say, look, I need a thousand tons HTP shampoo bottle grade because I need to put this now into my, my shampoo bottles. And we see lots of interesting interactions with brands that have never ever prior to that used recycled plastics yeah. coming on the platform and, and learning the, now the ropes of what how challenging it also is to put recycled plastics into their products. So what did you learn from Blah Blah Car? Because deciding to share a vehicle has a lot of similarities to deciding to do business together. What tricks and hacks did you have to, 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 to focus on in order to get the plastics recyclers to start to use the marketplace? Yeah, and actually great that you pointed out that um, often in the, because actually you when often we get in the market, the first response, well, ride sharing has nothing to do with buying and selling recycled plastic, but I tend to disagree, just like you said, because I said, in the end, it's about establishing trust mm-hmm. between two parties that, Made, might know each other already or not, 
about a product, which is a rideshare or let's say a material. And can that platform facilitate that such trust that you will go via such a platform and not try to just use your phone books or the trade fairs or like you discussed it and try to make a deal over a, a beer. And, and so a lot of the hacks that I learned at BlaBlaCar with regard, how do you establish trust is now what I'm adapting to put on surplus as well, like working with standards, working with certified bodies, trying to get like reviews and ratings into the platform, showing also the immediate added value when you don't just talk to your 10 existing suppliers, but actually, hey, I can compare, maybe I wanna wait this year a little bit, maybe I wanna try a new supplier or a new buyer. Uh, and these are the aspects that while needing to be adapted to the B2B world is still very much where I can, can really um, nourish from my BlaBlaCar experience and say, you know what, that worked great at BlaBlaCar, now I'm gonna transfer it in the world of recycled plastics. And believe it or not, in two out of three cases, it works. I, I completely agree. I happen to have been involved in the founding of Match.com and some of the, the basic steps involved creating trust or at least creating flows of information that allowed the people in the marketplace to establish trust. Now, contamination is the biggest issue in plastics recycling. How, do, how does surplus allow somebody to express that we really do a good job of providing uncontaminated recyclables? Yeah. I mean, if you go on the platform today, you will see, I mean, there's first a big separation whether or not you put waste on the platform, feedstock or recyclables, as you call it, or recyclets already. I mean, that's number one. Um, number two, when you specify your products, uh, we call this nudging. So mm -hmm. we, of course, want to incentivize the users to give us and share as much information as they can about the quality of their product. Now, there's a bit of a tension here, Mitch, because, you know, in digital business, the longer you and the more you ask of a user, the higher is the drop-off rate, right? They say, that's too long. I'm not going to give the information. But we continue now with, like, little product hacks to educate the users about, hey, the better you specify your recyclables, the better you give us information about how clean or dirty your, you know, your recyclables are, mm -hmm. the better chances you have that you actually find a matching buyer immediately or like in a shorter shorter amount of time. So that's step number one. It's just the amount of data that we require and thus incentivizing the user to give us more data. Second step though is we have been um, quite fundamental in building what I would call the first industrial standard for high quality plastic recycling outside PET. And that's the Dean Spec 91446. So we've built this together with 16 players from the value chain, including Tomra, including Klaus Maffei, machine builders, recyclers, et cetera, to define the data quality levels required of feedstock and recyclers to put converters into a situation to really decide, all right, what do I have here? Is this a really highly contaminated plastic waste? Can I, can I work with that for my application or can I not? So this again was, we had to do the ground, the heavy lifting at the beginning because there was no such standard, Mitch. There was nothing in the market and the existing standards were largely unusable or were not used because they didn't give enough information back that could be used for a converter or, or a brand to say, okay, I'm gonna use this recycled or even further down the line, I'm gonna use this recyclable performance recycling process. So long story short, data input required as well as building the standard and now plugging this in with the certification bodies together to increase the trust in the material on the platform. Now, standards are both national and international. You're working in Europe right now. How do you anticipate expanding into other regions, particularly in the United States? We are interested in that. But also, um, 
communicating that those standards or that there are gaps in standards that we need to fill uh, are that you're ready to help solve those problems. How are you going to grow based on all of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, definitely a challenging task. Uh, I mean, for one, I'm quite, uh, with regard to the American market, I think I'm quite um, lucky to have a great investor from the United States on board already, my climate journey. Um, so, you know, when once we're ready to go across the pond and it really establish a physical presence in the United States, I think I know whom to call. That's the first thing that I want to say. But as you asked more specifically about the dissemination of this, this standards and standardization efforts, today already on Surplus, we have companies from more than 100 countries using surplus. Yeah? Uh, and unbeknown to most of them, let's say I had a Mexican recycler on the platform just the other day, once you start putting products on the platform, you automatically specify your material based on the standard that we ingrain in the platform. They so it propagates, the standard is. it propagates itself simply exactly. from use. Exactly, and it's almost like they ask, what does this DQL2, data quality level two mean based on the INSPEC 914, because it's an English standard, like we wrote it in English. Uh, so that's something that they, there's a first like learn how to use the standard because there's no other available, which is great for us. And believe me, we're speaking with UL, with TÜV, with great certification organizations as well, because they're interested in their work too, because for them it's a business then to certify against such a standard, right? Still right now, it's only a German standard while being used international. My next step is to pro promulgate or disseminate the standard is, uh, I'm active at the European organization, SEN. Uh, the, the organization that spreads the European standards. And we're now turning the DINSPEC into a European standard, standard, which is very much part of the roadmap of the European Commission, as they are requesting uh, more standards for the recycled plastics markets. And so this standard basically is at the forefront of being turned into the next European standard, I might say. Um, so then at least we have this established as a European standard. And who knows? Hopefully, the American community will also find the standard relevant enough to say, you know what, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We can already use their standard because it sets the same, you know, plastic recycling is essentially the same in the US than in, in Europe. So how fast is your business growing? Right now, right now, we cannot actually serve all the demand on the platform. Since the beginning of the year, demand on the platform for recyclables, recyclables and recyclers has grown more than 600% since January. Yeah. Now, of course, this is percentage and we're still a small business, but still like for us, it's actually a bit of a challenge, Mitch, because recyclers on the inventory side, we have about 1.3 million tons of material listed right and right now as we speak, right. but 90% of that is sold out. And that wow. tells you something, that tells you something. And for us as a platform, it's a challenge, right? To acquire more supply, of course, is one, one big thing and also manage the user expectations because you have a lot of demand in this. But you know, we we also not magicians. If the material is not available, then you know what do we do? You know, we kind of cater to the disappointment in a way to say, you know what, just register your procurement needs, and the moment the material hits the world again, you'll be the first to know because right. on surplus we're collecting it all. Because the market will change again too. You know, I think we I, we both foresee a supply shortage for quite some time now. But you know, who knows what's going to happen in a year's time? Nobody foresaw the Ukraine war really. Um, so long story short, it's right now really challenging for us that we cannot actually keep up with the demand for recycled plastics overall platform. This is a great story. I want to take a quick break for a commercial. We have to pay for our show. Uh, we'll be right back. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, 
they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We're back to continue the conversation with Kristen Schiller, co-founder of Surplus, a new marketplace for buying and selling recyclable and recycled plastic. So Christian, this is really encouraging to hear about all of the growth and activity that you're, you're, you're describing. Are you seeing new companies, new entrants in this market, particularly in sourcing recyclable plastic? Absolutely, and I think you've had some of your of them on your show already. I think you've seen I've seen Victor Deovo from Recycli, but I think especially in the UK, I think there's at least three venture-backed uh, startups now in the space of improving the sorting. I think I'm speaking of Great Parrot, Recycli, um, and there's a third one as well. Um, so, uh, you know, another one. Yeah, um, there is. Um, it's me as a venture-backed startup being close to the venture capital world. There's a lot of excitement around this entire technology and sorting. Number one. Mm -hmm. Second, there is an uh, area of attention for venture capital to go into the global south, into the markets of the global south, to really put money into better waste collecting infrastructure. Yeah. We're not even talking about sorting here. There's a there's a company in the in India, for example, Recycle. They're called. They raised about I believe a 20 million US dollar round um, fairly not not long ago. And they're only in the space of collecting and improving the waste collection for markets mm -hmm. that don't have a proper waste collection. So you see a lot of activity at the beginning of the chain, I would say, right? Then there's also in the second space, you know, because recycling depends fundamentally on the quality of the products you put on the market, right? Are they right. really recyclable, you know? And you know that uh, more than anybody else. But I think I see a lot of startups in the space of can we redesign or can we help brands redesign their products so that they use more mono materials or more easy to recycle materials. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there is some, you know, some tension in these trends about replacing plastic now with other materials, etc. And um, that's a whole podcast for itself there. But that's I such an entire year's podcast right there. Right. <laughs> but there, there's also venture venture money going into that space, right? Redesigning products to make them fit and ready for recycling. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the third is, of course, I'd say in the digitization of um, the recycling process, um, not so much for venture capital, but the when you talk to the machine builders, the ones that are really putting the machines for recycling, the Stalingers, Eremas, uh, Kraus-Maffeis, Arbuchs, it's very interesting to see how they optimize inline extrusion 
or like where they develop software to help the extrusion process or the recycling process to, uh, to work with more impurities and more fluctuations in right. melt flow index, et cetera. And that's the missing, fundamentally missing gap, you know, gap to improve the extrusion process again, that the recycled plastic can reach quality levels never seen before so that they are ready to go into applications where they have never really been used before and thus unlock new markets for the waste to go into. So, so these are the three areas I would say where we see most activity. Let, let's look at one example and that's recycled PET. Um, there's a lot of demand for this, particularly from the, the bottling industry. Are you seeing a, a significant increase in the volume of collected PET that could be processed into our uh, pet or recycled PET? Is that being driven by, in, uh, by investment in the kinds of companies you were just talking about, or are consumers simply flooding the market with more and more recyclables as a result of their their efforts to clean up their own mess? Mm, I'd say my immediate response is neither of the two, Mitch, actually. Really? Because, okay. Uh, yeah, at least now I'm always speaking mostly of the European market. I'm not sure how that mm -hmm. is really in America, but at least when I speak for the German and Austrian markets here, like, you know, the big markets in the center of Europe, a legislation change to also put more deposit return schemes right. on PET that's out, you know, outside the sodas. You know, we like just a very minor detail example. In Germany, the juices PET have not been under the deposit return scheme. Now they are. Mm -hmm. So all, oh, almost over, almost overnight, you you took it out of the classic household cur curbside collection yellow bag system in Germany into the clean streams of the deposit return schemes under the control of the retailers, right? <clears throat> so there is more quantity that have been by regulatory shifts have been be, like qualified for the market. Uh, well, does, that suggest, yeah. does that suggest that we need to think outside the single stream recycling system and be more specialized, which is also an element of what I was trying to ask earlier, it, it, because consumers are looking for ways to do this better. Certainly the people listening to the show are and want to know that their efforts are going to pay off, not just in terms of getting a deposit back, but that the process works. Yeah. But look, Mitch, I have a very strong opinion in that regard, because I always think, um, and Germany, you're being the separation European champion there. Why do we burden consumers with this difficult decision to decide, all right, this yogurt cup has three elements, I need to take yeah. care of the aluminum cup and then the paper. I mean, it's never like, there's never going to be perfect sorting at the household level. But then you talk to the uh, Tomras and Zesotex and Steiners of the world, and they tell you, you know, we can sort a lot better already today. Um, it can almost even work if we just decide we have a wet waste stream and a dry waste stream. So to completely make it an idiot proof for the consumer. But still a segmentation that people need to be aware of and understand how to do. True, 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 true. That's true too. But I, I, I mean, I think Germany with the segmentation is going too far, honestly. It's, it's, it makes it so complex okay. for consumers and it doesn't keep up with the in innovations in the packaging space specifically. I mean, now we go really into the packaging space, but I think are we really asking of consumers to always scan a yogurt cup and understand this is now biodegradable plastic, this has to go into your bio-based bin, and this is bioplastic but goes into your yellow bin, or this is non-recyclable, goes into your gray bin? I, you know, I see the data and I see how, how poorly we separate correctly in Germany. And that's a very advanced collection system. So my answer actually is well, why don't we let technology solve that at the aggregate level, which because we could, if we wanted to.
at least that's my opinion. Um, I know there's a lot of counter interest in that market, but I don't think see that we can get the consumer as to be that perfectly sorting uh, human oh, being I, I, that we all hope to be. And despite the fact we have a database to help them figure that stuff out across a wide range of materials, I agree. Uh, I think what we need to do is radically simplify the packaging regime that we live under in order to, particularly with plastic, create a more consistent streams. Let me ask about a couple other technologies that we've been talking about on the show. What do you? What is your take on this? The emerging chemical or molecular plastic recycling business is there a there there, and and what do you see as the the critical points we should be watching for to say yes, that really is beginning to work. That's a fascinating discussion to have. Um, now, what I see is still, I mean, number one, what I see is the commitment by the big petrochemists to pour a lot of money into it, right? Mm -hmm. I think the commitment, Europe is by 2030, 7.6 billion euros, um, Plastics Europe had made this announcement. So it's going to be reality at some mm -hmm. point. Yeah? They don't come out with a, such a statement and then don't go through, number one. Number two, I still don't see any scaling going on with the products that the, the projects that I see. Um, I see a lot of testing and still understanding which feedstock really qualifies for what type of chemical recycling process, right? Because there are so many out there uh, that you can fit under the chemical recycling umbrella. It's not clear cut where are they putting their, their chips on. So that's point yeah. number two. Point number three, I think for MRFs, that is a real, I think MRFs, you know, sorting plants, um, that's a real interesting market situation to be in because if only they understood better to which specifications of plastic waste they have to now maybe rearrange their sorting equipment to have a new outlet for their bailed material, that becomes just a new and additional stream of revenue for them. So I think they are in a really comfortable position because they can sit back almost in a way and say, you know what, let's see where the petrochems are coming up with. And then I just need to be ready to, to kind of steer my volumes that go through my plant into 60% goes mechanical, the other 40% can go into chemical, and I might even get a premium on the chemical recycled feedstock. Yeah. Right. So um, this is just general view on it. I think the fourth big thing is what I don't yet see play out is that regulators are so willingly accepting it on an equal footing as mechanical recycling, at least in, in, in Europe, or even though there's a lot of effort going into it or from the lobbying side. That's, of course, a crucial, crucial step to happen for the chemical recycling, because if you don't, then the economics of chemical recycling will always be so poor, you might as well go after virgin, right? And well, and we have to understand whether or not they can really be a carbon neutral, non-toxic process. And, I, and that hasn't been that hasn't been proven at all. And in Europe, I can say the debate is only about the CO2 impact, but what you're touching upon, Mitch, is really, really to the point. What about all the untoxic parts of the chemical recycling process? We don't really talk about that, right? And you'll end up with a process that, yeah, you get the carbon back somehow, but at such a high cost that you might as well say, you know what, better to incinerate that waste than, uh, than to chemically recycle it. And this is all about economics uh, at the end of the day. One of the other questions that I've, I've asked a number of people is, is all the plastic that is in the ground and lying around the planet already recyclable? Is there a way for us to create an incentive around collecting the, what we have already buried to start to, to replace the plastic, that, particularly the virgin petroleum that we use to make all the plastic foods? Mm. Okay, may I now venture a little bit into the field of uh, visionary and maybe less realistic? Be sci-fi. Go for it. 
and and not so much sci-fi maybe because I, I listened to this amazing podcast um what was it two years ago and it was already building a surplus called uh, 30 minutes to the moon yeah, by the bbc it's a fascinating podcast about the landing on the moon right mm-hmm. and i and i tried to put myself into the shoes of the united states beginning of the space flight program and saying in 10 years we're going to put a man on the moon yeah and kennedy was well aware that the technology wasn't there and probably most engineers at the time said that's impossible we can't do it you know and unsurprisingly mitch it was fascinating i learned this the podcast the average age of the nasa engineer that worked on the project did you know that it was 29 years old they came right out of college because probably older engineers said no no i'm not going to work on that space flight thing that's never going to work yeah which is why lifelong education is going to be critical for all of us to make these changes part of the problem is that older engineers and older everybody stopped learning but but the the space program was also the most effective marketing program in history as far as i can tell I mean, here I am. I'm a German and talking about the, the how great the American space program was, right? But <laughs> but I, I like I like the metaphor because, and I actually ingrained it into the culture of surplus. I can tell you, Gene Kranz, the flight commander of uh, of the NASA program, you know, he said he said my engineers had two words written on the whiteboard: tough and competent. And if there's anything you need to to survive in the markets of recycling and plastic waste, you need to be tough and competent. And that's what we're trying to replicate at Surplus. It really, I, I, I onboard my team with these words. Yeah, I said, this is a tough market to be in. To your question though, I think what I take from that is, I just simply don't accept that the human ingenuity, the engineering power of all the great engineers out there just sort of give up in the face of, yeah, but this is multi-layered material. It's impossible to recycle. We can't do anything about it. I just refuse to accept that. Honestly, if all the oil wells in the world tomorrow would stop working, and all the refineries had to shut down, I promise you we would find a way to make these products that are seen as unrecyclables today in some way or another recyclable. Yeah. So, so, so you don't see degraded monomers in that, that vast amount of waste. You see the potential to restore those monomers and use them. I do, I do see the challenges as well. If I may give you one example, I'm not just visionary. I, I know, I mean, and this was a pro- project from big FMCGs from the United States, you probably know. And they've built a bottle called the Beach Bottle. Yep. And they used, they really tried to collect plastic waste, real ocean plastic, not beach plastic. This was real ocean. And they, I was in the halls where they went of the converter who took the plastic waste. And I had to say, it was such a, excuse me, nightmare. Uh, I would have used another word, but it was such a nightmare because different levels of degradation. Yes, it was all HDPE, but it was different levels of degradation. There was biofilm on it. It was smelly. And I had to, we had to reuse odor, you know, odor additives to get rid of the odor. Uh, Nobody wants to have a shampoo bottle that smells like fish, right? And so I'm well aware of the fact, Mitch, that there's a lot of technology not available today. Many will say it's impossible to get anything useful out of these polymers that have been in the environment already. But I'm not so quick to just accept that. I say, yes, it's gonna be super challenging. Maybe we just have to, if I have to find a cleaner way to burn them, mm-hmm. could also be a good use of the polymers. But I'm, I'm just not accepting that these landfills where we have all the plastic buried in the ground, as you said, it is forever lost for human usage. I, I just don't accept it. And I think necessity would drive the required technology advances. And all that I'm seeing in terms of consumer and regulatory pressure makes me hopeful that we're eventually going to get there. Last question on the on, on the process side, and that is, do you see the consumer packaged goods companies who are now buying all of the recycled plastic 
really starting to embrace and think about the idea of circularity, particularly with regard to standardizing their packaging so that it is more easily recycled? It's such a broad question. I think the classical answer is it depends. <laughs> Do you see um, the early indications that the leaders are going that direction? Uh, yes, I see indications, number one. I see number two, though, a second contra contrary impact as well. And that has to do again with what we already mentioned in the podcast, chemical recycling. Mm -hmm. If I hear as a brand that my LDPE packaging will have an outlet, outlet in the chemical recycling process, why should I worry about updating my product design if the big petrochems tell me, you know what, don't worry about it. In five years from now, it's going to be considered recyclable because it will be uh, in entering the, the chemical recycling stream. I see what you mean, yeah. So there's a certain chilling effect on these, let's say, real, so you call early signs that some in the product design are now questioning, should we really spend so much time on redesigning and really putting recycles into our product when we can just kind of do business as usual with, uh, with and then putting the chips on the petrochems that they're gonna, in German, we say, get the coals out of the fire. Yeah, so this is something, my my answer to your question is yes and no. I see good early signs, but I also see chilling effects, given that there's still so much uncertainty where the market for plastic recycling is going to be in 10 years from now. So based on what you've learned from surplus today, are there other material streams that you are thinking would be attractive to bring into your marketplace over time? Or is plastic enough for now? Absolutely enough, enough for now, Mitch. Uh, funny enough, we started out, the original tagline of the company was the global marketplace for recycled materials, right? Okay. But quickly we learned, and quickly, you know, little did I know about the plastic markets at the time, quickly learned the markets for plastic is so huge. The problems are also so big. And we're only talking about plastic recycling today and really the standard plastics mostly, right? Post-consumer, right. we talk about the polyolefins, the PETs. But we haven't even started really touching upon post-consumer technical plastics, right? There you only have post-industrial recycling, really. But what about getting those home appliance plastic PP, ABS out of the washing machine in the fridge and putting that back? Or what about old car parts, you know, used cars, not post-industrial recycling? We are at the beginning of that debate, which nobody has really that under their purview. The other day, final, uh, hopefully interesting aspect of your for your um, listeners, here in Hamburg, we also have an aviation hub hub because Airbus is uh, producing uh, parts of their fleet here mm -hmm. and air, you know flight they're thinking starting to think about recycling of their you know the plastic there is in the in airplanes yeah and can we get recycled plastics into airplanes it's not really known to the to the public and challenges are huge obviously but i say Mitch there's enough work for me for a lifetime to spend on making surplus work just for the plastic space I think it's a good idea not to boil the ocean. <laughs> I completely, I, I completely understand where you're going, and I'm glad to hear. It. And this is really encouraging. I got to tell you. Do you see an end potentially to the demand for virgin petroleum as a result of the recycling of plastic? Um, yes. I mean, actually, in my, you know, I can say in my presentations to investors, when I'm asked exactly that question, I say, I mean, the future will be bio-based plastics, right? Uh, plus high-quality recycling, uh, plus a more, much more limited and smaller market for biodegradable plastics, where the biodegradability is really by design. You need this plastic to disintegrate because I don't know because it's in the human body, 
like stitches or something. I don't know. This is a the niche market. I'd say mm -hmm. uh, to your questions, I do see an end to the need for fossil-based virgin plastic. Um, so we will switch to bio-based feedstock, but at a, at a molecular level, it will be the same plastic, highly durable, easy to recycle, ideally with additives that don't mess up the recycling process so much. Yeah. Um, this is what I would say is the future of the, what I see is the future of the plastic. We're not going to get rid of the material, but we're going to move away from crude oil as the feedstock, and we're going to improve plastic recycling. We have to across all polymer types and move into real, even recycling methods we don't even know of yet, Mitch, you know, um, bioenzymatic, uh, catalytic recycling. There's so much out there. I think we're just at the beginning of a huge wave. And a lot of engineers coming out of college to solve those problems, which is also encouraging. I hope you'll come back and talk with us some more about this, but how can our listeners follow along with what Surplus is doing? Well, there's the usual channels. Of course, we are active on social media. Hit us up on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, you, na you name your channel. And of course, if you are an active in the space of buying and selling feedstock and recyclers, just sign up on surplus.com today. It's still for free now, as we're just iterating on our business model but uh, it won't be free forever. So you better uh, sign up now and start trading. Well, folks, you, hear, you heard it here first, get signed up and save a little money. Christian, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Mitch, my pleasure. We've been speaking with Christian Schiller. He's the co-founder of Surplus, a digital marketplace for circular plastics. And you can find out more at surplus.com. That's C-I-R-P-L-U-S.com. You know, that was a very inspiring conversation for me because it shows that we can use technology to solve these problems, but it doesn't always require a focus on technology. It means that we have to pay attention to human issues. How do you build trust? How do you do that? You have open marketplaces where information is available to everyone and they can make informed decisions. But that's also an environment in which new business models and new opportunities can evolve. And there are clearly huge opportunities for startups and for those firms who want to recalibrate their business a bit to source reliably clean, uncontaminated material and sell it into these, these marketplaces for plastics, metals, and other materials that we are still struggling to figure out how to recycle. So think about all of your human interactions and what you can do to encourage your neighbors to recycle more, to encourage your customers to send materials back to you in some way, or at least through some sort of a reverse logistics system that allows those materials to be aggregated and recycled. It's just the beginning of what we need to do. And the sustainable economy is going to evolve out of people taking the time and taking the risks to change the world. So let's do it together. This is Earth 911 Sustainability in Your Ear. I'm Mitch Ratcliffe, and we're going to be back with another innovator interview soon. In the meantime, take a few minutes and share this podcast. Let's get Christian's ideas out there so everybody can hear them. Uh, your friends, your family, the people you work with, the world is waiting for new information. More ideas is going to result in less waste. We'll be back. In the meantime, take care of yourself, take care of one another, and let's all take care of this beautiful planet of ours. Have a green day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.